0: Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel.
1: Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people.
0: I'm Sefi Kogan.
1: And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman.
0: So Manya, who did you talk to this week?
1: Sefi, I talked to Congresswoman Nita Lowy here in New York about her surprise decision to retire after 32 years on Capitol Hill. I also hit the streets of Manhattan to test New Yorkers' knowledge about anti-Semitism. How about you?
0: That sounds great. I spoke with Elon Orzi, the director of advocacy at Hillel's of Ontario, about some of the issues that have been going on on campuses uh, way up in the Great White North, uh, and was also joined by Zev Hurwitz, AJC's director of campus affairs.
1: Ah, uh, important stuff. Let's hit the show. Congresswoman Nita Lowy has served on Capitol Hill for 32 years, but on Yom Kippur this year, she reached a momentous decision to retire, surprising her constituents, her colleagues, maybe even herself. Congresswoman Lowy joins us today to talk about her impending retirement and all she has witnessed over the last three decades in Congress. Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You have been in Congress for 32 years. You arrived in 1988 at a time when women made up less than 7% of the House of Representatives. You were the first female chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I hope I have that title right. But a number of women have joined you over the years. I mean, today, I think women comprise 23 percent of that chamber and a quarter of the Senate, the most ever in the history of Washington. Tell me, what's the benefit of having more women's voices on Capitol Hill? And tell me a little bit about watching this rise of women alongside you.
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, when I served as an intern in 1958, women quite literally had no place in Washington. I couldn't even find a ladies' room. Oh, and in 1989, I was sworn into the United States Congress, one of 31 women serving in the Senate and House of Representatives, 31 out of 535. Wow. Wow. So I'm happy they added more ladies' rooms, because today (laughs) we have 126 women serving in the Congress, 25 in the Senate, and 101 in the House. That is more than four times as when I arrived 31 years ago. And for the first time in history, the House Appropriations Committee is not led by a man, I became the ranking member of the full committee in 2012, and I was the first woman to hold that position. And now I'm the first woman, and I should add the first Jewish woman, to chair the committee. Mm. And in fact, with my colleague Kay Granger serving as the top Republican appropriator, this is the first time in more than 30 40 years that two women have led any House committee. Wow. So I had no idea when I came to Congress that one day I would wield the power of the purse in Congress (laughs) or that I would be one of four lawmakers, two of whom were women, negotiating the end to the longest ever partial government shutdown at the beginning of the year.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So why does that matter? In other words, what perspective do women bring to those kinds of conversations that had been missing previously?
2: Well, let me say this. There is no question that women have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And I could discuss many, many issues, but women, many of whom are wives, many of our mothers— definitely look at an issue with a different viewpoint.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that had been missing before? I mean, were there decisions made in the past that you look back on and think, "Wow, well, if a woman had been in this position? <laughs> you know, I don't really think about the past. Okay,
2: I think about the future. I think about my role now. I think of the opportunity to make legislation and to serve my community, which is Westchester and Rockland. It used to be Queens, the Bronx, Southern Westchester. So I've had changing districts through the year. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm very proud of all that I've achieved working for and with the wonderful people in the lower Hudson Valley. As you know, as a Congresswoman. I have a key role in Washington as chair of the Appropriations Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the district, I've helped thousands and thousands of individuals, people who really were desperate and needed help. So it's a very important job, both in the district and in Washington. And as the first woman and the first Jewish member of Congress to chair the House Appropriations Committee. Mm-hmm. I have been very proud to champion funding for programs of critical importance to the Jewish community, such as support to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge, nonprofit security grant funding, and uh, this job certainly gives me the opportunity to wake up every day and just do good things.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about the relationship with Israel, and you have been a long-time champion of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Why? Why has that been a priority for you?
2: Well, first of all, as a young woman growing up in the Bronx, New York, I belonged to Young Israel of the Concourse. I, remember Jewish holidays and interacting with many friends and neighbors. Uh, So this has always been a priority for me. And funding to Israel isn't a gift. It isn't charity. A significant portion of the funding we provide comes back to the U.S. in purchases of American military equipment, Many people don't know that. And the U.S. and Israel partner to develop state of the art missile capabilities that help both of our countries' national security. So the aid package has only further strengthened the ironclad U.S. Israel relationship, allowing us to cooperate on homeland security, counterterrorism efforts that save lives in both countries. And with tensions flaring in almost all parts of the Middle East, our relationship with Israel is more important than ever. Mm -hmm. And when our allies, like Israel, are more secure, the United States benefits.
1: Mm -hmm. There is a campaign proposal out there being pitched by several of your Democratic colleagues to leverage U.S. aid to Israel in order to pressure the country to roll back its West Bank settlements. It's become an issue, an actual campaign issue. What is your take on that particular approach, that particular proposal, and the fact that it's become an issue in the presidential campaign?
2: Well, first of all, bipartisan support for Israel is key to maintaining the vitally important U.S.-Israel relationship. And I think concerns over decreasing Democratic support are overblown, in my opinion. And this uh, last July, Congress passed a resolution condemning BDS and supporting a two-state solution, with 398 members, including 209 Democrats, voting in support. Uh, Since President Trump came into office, the White House and Republicans here in Congress have continually tried political tactics to turn Israel into a partisan issue. And these, in my judgment, are gotcha attempts are dangerous mm-hmm. and risk a critical relationship that benefits both countries' national security. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been multiple motions, as we call them, to recommit, to try to make Democrats look anti-Israel.
1: Yeah. So what is your take on settlement expansion? What do we do about that, especially now that the United States, Secretary of State Pompeo, has announced the United States doesn't consider it illegal?
2: Well, I was troubled by the administration's announcement to reverse the U.S. position on Israeli settlements in the West Bank. For those like myself who are committed to seeing a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this decision will make an ultimate resolution of the West Bank status. During direct negotiations between the two sides, even more difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: So now I want to switch topics from Israel to anti Semitism, which is also a, a priority. And in 2015, you formed the House's, uh, or co formed, uh, the House's bipartisan task force for combating anti Semitism. But honestly, then it was really—and correct me if I'm wrong—but it was formed with anti-Semitism on the rise globally. That was really what you were trying to address with that task force, and now it seems to be on the rise here. What do we do about that? Did that catch you by surprise? Can you reflect on that a little?
2: Well, from the very beginning, when I organized the task force, it focused on anti-Semitism both here— at home and abroad, but rates of domestic anti-Semitism have exploded Mm -hmm. since we were formed in 2015. And the FBI continues to show that the vast majority of religious-based hate crimes are committed against Jewish and Jewish institutions. Of course, we were all shocked and horrified by the Tree of Life shooting just a little more than one year ago, but many of us especially those who represent New York City and its suburbs, feel like we hear about anti-Semitic incidents in our districts on a daily basis. Legislatively, it is critical we continue to support programs that ensure nonprofit institutions are able to protect themselves from outside threats, and additionally, we have a responsibility to increase the capacity of local law enforcement to track and report all hate crimes. As we all know that anti-Semitism, racism, all forms of xenophobia are awful. And frankly, they're often terrible bedfellows.
3: Yes.
2: I'm confident that my colleagues on the House task forces, as well, as Senators Rosen and Langford, who are co-chairs of the newly formed Senate task force, mm-hmm. will continue to lead efforts to combat anti-Semitism, both domestically and around the world. Mm -hmm.
1: And you, in particular, at Rockland County, you've had some terrible incidents there. In fact, one very recent where a a man was stabbed outside a synagogue. That in particular, what do you tell your constituents in your district when these incidents occur? How do you comfort them, um, console them, assure them? Well, I think more
2: important than comforting them and assuring them or educating them Mm -hmm. And frankly, what I've been focused on, not necessarily only in my district, I have visited college campuses where they are educating students and helping them to understand what is happening. This is about education. And many of the organizations, like American Jewish Committee, have become very active on college campuses. I've met with presidents of universities. I've met with many of the student groups. And we have to make sure they understand that they're educating. And in fact, in one of the universities I attended on Friday night dinners, uh, Hillel, uh, invites about 300 to 600 students, and they're not all Jewish. Right. So right. it's very important to uh, continue these education activities all across the country. And the, I'm proud of groups like the American Jewish Committee and others that are really focused on this work.
1: So now, well, thank you very much for that. I want to also turn to your own personal decision to retire. You reportedly reached that decision during the Jewish high holidays, specifically Yom Kippur, right? <laughs> yeah. Yom Kippur is a time of
2: solemnity, a time that is very contemplative. You get a lot of space to think while I'm surrounded by family. Mm-hmm. And I have always felt that this is a time to think about the future and to think about um really what you want to do with your life. I've had 32 years in the House of Representatives. This has been an extraordinary job to be able to wake up every morning and just think about what kind of good things you can do and how you could help people. So for me, it was a tough decision but my husband retired several years ago. Our grandchildren are growing up. I decided I wanted to spend more time with family for a while. Yes.
1: Okay. Well, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. One last question for you, and that is, how do you believe your legacy will live on in Congress, Um, in your conversations with colleagues? How do you feel that that will continue?
2: I've always had very positive relationships with my colleagues. And as the head of the Appropriations Committee and someone who has always been very active in Black-Jewish relations, in Jewish-Christian relations, I would hope that many of the activities that I've been a part of, that perhaps I've inspired, will continue.
1: Thank you so much, Congresswoman. You're welcome. And enjoy your retirement.
0: Recently, two disturbing incidents took place on Canadian college campuses. The first at the University of Toronto saw some students raise an objection to supporting kosher food on campus on the grounds that accommodating that religious need on campus could be seen as supporting a political choice. The second took place at York University, where violence broke out during a presentation from an Israeli speaker. Joining us now to discuss these two issues and the state of things for Jewish students on campus is Ilan Orzi, Director of Advocacy at Hillel's of Ontario, and Zev Hurwitz, AJC's Director of Campus Affairs. Ilan, Zev, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Elon, tell us more about what happened last week at York University and how we got to a point where violence is taking place on our campuses.
3: For sure. Well, uh, York's campus environment is rather interesting. There are uh, a few different campus presence from the Jewish community. Um, There is Hillel York, which uh, serves the bulk of the Jewish students on campus. Um, There is also a club called Husbara York, which is connected to Husbara Fellowships Canada. And um, lately, there's been a a new club that has popped up called Hey Root Canada, which is a new thing not only for York University, but also for the Canadian community. Uh, It seems to be spearheaded by one individual student, but the club's presence on campus was noted a few weeks ago when uh, there was a little bit of trouble between um, them and actually getting accredited as a club on campus. Once they became accredited, they put into plans bringing a group of reservists on duty, which is a group of Israeli um, reserve soldiers who believe that they should be on presence on campuses in North America to discuss what's going on uh, in Israel, the truth about Israel, uh, dispel myths about the BDS movement, uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, things of that nature. In 2017, uh, Hillel, Ontario actually brought them to a few campuses for a tour, and uh, we were planning on hosting them at Hillel Laurier, which is um, about an hour outside of Toronto to our west. Uh, it's one of our Hillel Ontario campuses. Um, when the opportunity presented itself at Hillel York, however, to partner with the Roots on this um, opportunity, we declined. The reason being that we didn't feel that this program was uh, the right move for the campus environment at York. York University has been notorious in our community for uh, many years, unfortunately, for being a place that has a lot of uh, protests and feelings towards the Jewish community, specifically on the notion of uh, our community being in favor of the state of Israel. And uh, our approach over the last decade um, with Hillel York and now with Hill Ontario has been to build bridges with other clubs, and build connections individually rather than just sort of bring as many programs as we can to campus that we feel might be good, we'd rather do so in a more strategic and cohesive way with our campus partners. And we have had great strides in that area. In fact, the last time there was such a violent incident um, that involved the Jewish community at York, in my recollection, would be about a decade ago. Um, and uh, it's we're thankful to live in a environment where Jewish students enjoy a safe and vibrant campus experience on average, and that is true at York and every other campus that we work with. Um, But specifically at York, it takes a finer touch to find the right programs to bring and the right way to bring Israelis to campus.
0: So, Elon, at the risk of being too American, right, sometimes from here in New York, Canada just kind of feels like America North. But obviously, there's, you know, (laughs) Canada has its own political culture. Universities in Canada are not carbon copies of universities in America. So, you know, what else is going on vis-a-vis BDS, vis-a-vis, you know, related to the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement in Canada? Would you say that the situation tends to be fairly good or less good? You know, how are you feeling writ large?
3: We get that comment a lot from our friends to ourselves, um, that America <laughs> and Canada seem a lot alike. In this element, I think that we are different. Um, myself and our partners at the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which is the advocacy wing of the Jewish Canadian community, um, we did a study a little while ago to look at BDS uh, successes, failures, etc., on Canadian campuses across the country. I can only speak to inside of this province in Ontario But BDS has been very much on decline in terms of its success rate. Uh, There have been a number of opportunities in the last um, few years, including outside of this province, where there have been BDS resolutions or uh, attempts even off campus um, to promote BDS. And uh, that has fallen very much on deaf ears or has been stopped at uh, whatever opportunity. A great example of that is uh, the three leaders of the uh, last Canadian election, which happened not uh, two months ago, For the NDP, which is the new Democratic Party, much like our uh, Socialist Party, our Labour Party in Canada, the Liberal Party, which is the party currently in power under the direction of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and the Conservative Party under the direction of uh, Andrew Scheer, all three major parties have taken stances against BDS in the past, uh, and uh, we are very thankful that the three major parties in Canada um, move that way, much like you see in the United States. On a more local level, councillors mayors, provincial premiers, which is the Canadian equivalent to a governor, they have very much taken the stance against BDS as well. That's true in Ontario. That's true in provinces to our west and to our east. Very much the Canadian political community stands against BDS, and that extends very much to campus. On the campus front, we have taken proactive measures at McGill University in Montreal, at Ryerson University here in Toronto, and at Western University, which is located in London, Ontario, about two hours to the west of Toronto, Um, those three university student unions have uh, adopted um, the Ottawa Protocol or the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which specifically points to anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism overlapping in at least a number of situations. Um, And we believe that these proactive steps prove that the Canadian community on and off campus is moving away from BDS. The fact that BDS uh, motions are failing at a larger rate than they were maybe five or 10 years ago, I think speaks to
0: that as well. Zev, does that tend to align with where things are in the states that, you know, Elon just said BDS measures are failing, you know, at at record rates? Would you say that that BDS tends to be failing in the states as well?
4: I I think it's really a hit or miss uh, thing in the United States as to whether or not BDS is passing in its traditional forms uh, as a resolution in student government, or if it's a a referendum that uh, is brought to the entire student body. Uh, but the, 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 the real question here is in terms of the success of the movement, is it doing anything to actually change university investment practices uh, with regard to companies that do business with Israel or are based in Israel? And the answer to that is not at all. Uh, we've had you know, dozens of, of different uh, resolutions and referenda over the last couple of years uh, at the student government level that are – at, at the best advisory on these these messages to university administrators saying, hey, we uh, we the student government here are are saying you need to pull these investments, and you, not a single university administration has gone ahead and changed how uh, the the school does in, does business or does uh, investments with uh, with Israel or with uh, Israeli companies. And this traditional model of of bringing it to a vote at the student government level or the the campus wide level has really only succeeded uh, in name only. And yeah, sure we've got 50 51 or 50 plus one percent of uh, of the voting body who participates in the school election or on this uh, student government council to uh, to support BDS, but it hasn't. I mean, it hasn't changed anything at the at the administrative level, and it has the only other thing that it's been able to do successfully is divide campus. And wherever a BDS resolution uh, is or a BDS campaign is, is coming up, we see time and time again that the campus climate takes a severe hit because of uh, because of this resolution. It, it really turns the campus into pro divestment, against divestment, uh, and and it, it can turn very heated. And at, at its extreme, um, you know, can be can be Violent or close to violent. Um, thankfully, that's not been the case most of the time. But we're we're, we're definitely increasingly seeing like more contentious uh, campus climate as a result of BDS coming to town. If I could just echo what Zev just said, I, um, I the same is true when it comes to universities in Canada and their relationships
3: uh, with Israeli universities or institutions. Um, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs works adamantly on that project, and we support them with that as much as we can. Where people feel that it is, you know, quote the worst place for Jewish students on campus in Canada. Um, namely, places like McGill and New York and U of T. Those universities have rich ties um, with Israeli institutions or Israeli uh, universities, and that I think speaks to exactly what Debo is saying that the BDS movement is maybe succeeding, but only in name.
0: Mm -hmm. Elon, I would be remiss to not ask you about Jewish student morale right now at York after this incident. And just in general, how are the students feeling about these problems that crop up?
3: I think the most emphatic answer I can give to that is that students are feeling uh, conflicted. And the reason is because I think that many of the Jewish students who are on campus today, um, especially the students that we meet in uh, the Hillow York Lounge, which is on campus in the student center, Um, many students feel that this wasn't a great strategy to begin with, but also, like us, condemn the violence and what happened uh, entirely. I was there um, during the uh, protest itself uh, with seven of my staff members, and we worked to ensure that as many Jewish students were not involved in the protests or weren't caught up in them trying to go to or from the event itself. Uh, And where we saw students of ours, we encouraged them to stay away, we encourage them to uh, make sure that they were safe at all times. After the event, our staff were on campus. We have a campus team of seven staff members at Hillel York. They all have been working diligently to connect with the Jewish students on campus, the ones who come in and out of our lounge, the ones who come to our daily programming, uh, and to figure out how they're feeling, to make sure that they understand that there is a place for them to be heard and that where there are concerns, we can address them as best we can. We can coordinate with administration and campus security before events like these, as we did. But it's also important for us to uh, reach out to the students afterwards and make sure that they feel supported. I think that the average Jewish student at York today, it does feel supported by our community uh, via our staff. But I also think that they realize that we can't take for granted the campus community that we've built over the years. And it's only thanks to amazing students like the student executive uh, leaders that we have today, as well as these students who are just on campus for the first time. This is maybe their first year. They're you know, frosh students or what we call them here in Canada. Um, when we when we see those students and they don't know the history of you know, of, Hill of York or of York University, or when this is the biggest touchpoint they have with the Jewish community, we make sure that they understand the reality on the ground, that they understand the services we can... Support
0: them with mm-hmm. Zev. Just to bring us home here, tell us about from your expert position. Uh, what have been the major trends regarding Israel on campus this semester? What should we be keeping an eye on?
4: Sure. Uh, so the the probably uh, or almost definitely more concerning than uh, the traditional modality of, of BDS being something that the student government is dealing with or, or in student elections is this culture of try of, of anti-Israel activists just completely not willing to engage uh, in any sort of meaningful dialogue or uh, pluralistic conversation. Um, a, a lot of this is due to, to anti-normalization, the idea that uh, students that are supportive of Zionism or of the Jewish right to self-determination, that holding on to that identity or that belief is enough to disqualify uh, a lot of anti-israel activists from from even holding a, a conversation or a joint program um, certainly certainly not a direct debate but even to just coexist in the same spaces um, and and we're seeing this uh, this, retreat from meaningful dialogue in a couple of forms. Uh, one is the renewed, and we, we've seen this recently, a uh, couple of big instances in the last uh, month or so of the heckler's veto, uh, the idea that students who don't approve of every single thing that or anything that a, a guest speaker or a lecturer or a professor on campus is going to be talking about coming in, uh, making noise, uh, disrupting. In some instances, uh, we just saw this at Arizona State University, blocking the door so that the event can't Proceed at all. And the goal here is to shut down speech that uh, anti-Israel activists disagree with by not allowing that speech to take place, which is a, a direct violation of, uh, of of the free speech. The same free speech which protects uh, the right to protest against something uh, should extend to the person who is there to speak in the first place. Um, so the heckler's veto has been used uh, against uh, Isra- Israeli speakers, uh, pro-Israel speakers. CP uh, Levni just had an event at Uh, Duke University, uh, the former foreign minister of Israel, uh, was delayed for a significant amount of time until security can come in and remove folks who are just straight up disrupting the conversation. And it's very hard to make the argument that you disagree with somebody's speech, and that's why you're protesting them if you won't even give them the chance to— to say what that speech is. And then the other long-term concern for us in the pro-Israel space on campus is when the BDS movement, seeing that their wins at the student government level, or wins in air quotes, uh, at the student government level aren't turning into policy change, uh, looking for other areas to get wins. And one of those areas is in academic boycotts uh, to which can be done at a much smaller level to, to say we're not going to cooperate with Israeli professors or we're not going to support study abroad programs uh, from uh, from our university in the U.S. to uh, a school in Israel. Uh, there was a big issue last year where Pitzer College in California was looking at ending its study abroad relationship with the University of Haifa. Um, and these are a lot lower hanging fruit for anti-Israel activists because it only takes a couple of uh, department chairs in, or a a couple of administrators in, in one academic department, to say we're not going to have Israeli speakers here, we're not going to publish works of, of Israeli professors, or we're not going to send our students to a university in Israel. Uh, it only takes a couple of voices there to have policy change that um, that affects the academic freedom of students that are looking to engage with Israel. Um, so, so both between between the increased use of academic boycott and and the heckler's veto, uh, we're we're starting to really see the the anti-Israel movement take the form of, well, we don't like Israel and we don't like Israeli speech, so we're just not going to allow that speech to exist here.
0: Well, thank you, Zev, for all your hard work on these issues. And thank you, Ilan and all the folks at Hillel across the countries and around the world for being such great partners as we work on these crucial issues. Amazing. Yeah, thank you.
3: Thanks
4: so much for having us.
1: Earlier this month, the American Jewish Committee published a glossary of anti Semitic terms titled Translate Hate. The point being, in order to fight anti Semitism, you have to know what it is. A lot of the terms were new to me, which got me thinking how many of them would be new to others as well. So I hit the streets of Manhattan with our producer, Ku Kong Do, and asked. A handful of folks were kind enough to make eye contact only a handful, it's New York after all and allowed me to give them a pop quiz. Here's a sample. The American Jewish Committee put out this guide on terms that are anti-Semitic, just to help people understand why certain words and terms are anti-Semitic. Um, and so we're going around just to get voices from the streets of New York to find out whether or not you know some of these terms and whether you consider them anti-Semitic. Have you ever heard of the term globalist? No. No. So I had never heard of it either when I came to work here. And so it refers to Jews who want to control the world, the globe, um, through uh, world banks, media, government. So now that I've shared that definition, is that an accurate definition? And now thinking about it, have you actually heard it before?
0: I have not heard it. Uh, I also (laughs) don't know that that exists, honestly. I don't think that uh, the... the motivation of a religion, of people in that religion, would be to take over the world. I think uh, probably Jews having survived Holocaust are doing the best they can for themselves and not necessarily trying to take over the world.
5: I've never heard it
2: used. Do I think it's accurate? Um, I think that probably for a lot of different people, not just one race, I think a lot of people want to control the world.
6: Yes, that I've heard. To me, I always thought globalism was the chains of trade and the intricacies of uh, trade policy. But then I learned more about how people always attribute that to George Soros and all the crazy conspiracy theories that they always put on him, which is always wild. He's the conspiracy theorist for all things uh, from the right.
1: Okay. And what is the conspiracy?
6: I have no idea. <laughs> I, I can't. All I know is they always mention George Soros and him spending money to, I guess, uh, have staged protests or stage whatever it is, is always staged from George Soros.
1: Do you recognize the term blood
6: libel? I've heard it, but I don't, I can't say for sure that I know, uh, the history of that term.
4: Okay.
1: So that is centuries old, and it is, uh, it refers to Jews who kidnap Christian children and use their blood to make matzah for Passover. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's insane. All right. So, and it still exists today in different forms. I just know it's anti-Semitic. I learned it when I was taking history of the Holocaust class. Do you believe people who are critical of Israel are anti-Semitic? No. Critical of Israel's policies or critical of Israel's existence or both? Ne- ne- neither. Only
6: yeah. policies. If you're critical of their policies, I wouldn't say you're anti-Semitic. But if you're critical of just people being from Israel, then yeah, that's okay. wild. Yeah. All right.
1: What's the difference?
6: Well, the difference is sort of like America. Like, we may uh, have bad foreign policies such as the war in Iraq, but does that mean all Americans are bad? No.
1: Everybody should be able to live in harmony and no one should be able to dictate what anybody else does. So do you consider someone who is critical of Israel to be anti-Semitic?
0: I think people that are critical of the existence of Israel are for sure uh, being anti-Semitic towards the Jewish people because it's considered a Jewish state. And uh, they, they don't see it that way. So the existence of the state of Israel in its current form is uh, probably their, you know, their motivation to get rid of it, and uh, would be anti-Semitic for sure. Not necessarily.
1: Okay. In what context does it ever become anti-Semitic, or never?
0: No, I mean, if they're 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 different things. Like there's an overlap, like a Venn diagram. But like, if you're anti-American, you're not inherently anti-Christian. Or if you're anti-Christian, you're not inherently like anti-American, like a vast majority of people in Israel are Jewish. So like Netanyahu's not a good dude, right? And so like you can be against the policies of a country based on their leader. Like one could easily argue that, you know, uh, America's in the crosshairs in that regard. So to be against a country or a regime It's not necessarily to be against a religion.
5: I tend to think they're anti Semitic. Okay. Yeah. Even if they're Jewish.
1: (laughs) Why? Because it's every you know, all Jewish people's homeland and if if you're against our homeland, then you have to be in some way anti Semitic.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk, and we're pleased to be joined this week at our Shabbat table by Amanda Borsheldon, Jewish World Editor at the Times of Israel. Amanda, when you're talking with your friends and family at your Shabbat table this week, what are you going to be talking about?
5: So this week, actually, I was listening to an interview with Hujamir Um, and this man who is running for president was frankly talking about his relatively late in life coming out story. Now, as the mother of a gay son, I was really marveling at how things have changed for the queer community in just a few short years, let alone the five decades since the Stonewall uprising that really helped mainstream the gay movement. So today, same-sex marriage is performed in something like 28 countries, and even here in Israel, a country that does not have a system of civil marriage, same-sex marriages that are performed abroad are recognized by the state. So I can dream that my oldest son will one day find his Mr. Wright and hopefully, like his five siblings, have the chance to raise a family here in Israel. Now, my son, who is not yet 16, was born into an era in which he feels really comfortable being loud and proud. This year, he's at a boarding school in Jerusalem where we visited him on Shabbat, and he greeted us wearing a full-body purple unicorn suit, complete <laughs> with a tail. So awesome. I think he's doing fine, but uh, in our house, the kids like me to play the super fun game "One Step from Death." Okay, because my superpower is that in almost any situation, I can see impending doom. Now, why am I <laughs> Can't talking all about Jewish this? mothers? <laughs> uh, seriously, anyone with Polish roots, at least, right? But why am I talking about my fun game "One Step from Death"? because on Sunday, it's World AIDS Day. And when I was growing up, AIDS was really a death sentence for many in the gay community. And several of my parents' friends were struck down. A dark cloud hung over their community of classical musicians, and so many whom we loved were lost. But today, that is so much less the case. Today, I ask my son what World AIDS Day means to him. And he actually said that he's not actually sure. He said, on the one hand, I do know about the AIDS epidemic and how devastating it was. But on the other hand, it was a long time ago. Granted, he's 16. And it relates to me a lot less than it would if I were even five years older. But as we all know, Safi, Mania, AIDS doesn't discriminate based on sexuality or age or really anything. So World AIDS Day was launched over 30 years ago, and until now, something like 40 million people worldwide have died of AIDS-related illnesses. Today, almost that many are living with the disease and more and more are surviving with the proper treatment. It's no longer a death sentence. Now, last year, World AIDS Day was held under the banner of Know Your Status. So for me, the mother of a healthy, curious, gay boy, I want to promote that drive and really, really, really ask everyone, gay, straight, whatever, that you find out your status. And this year, the theme is communities make the difference. So I know that sometimes the Jewish community likes to shy away from tough topics, but as we have all heard so many times, he who saves a life saves a whole world. And in this case, Frank open conversations can actually be life-saving so that's what we'll talk about at our Shabbat table this week and I hope some of you out there listening will find time for this topic too how about you Manya
1: Amanda thank you so much for sharing that that lovely glimpse of your family life and I can't get over the fact that you have six children that I you <laughs> I stuck on that for a while uh, five siblings yikes um, Our Shabbat table will be a little bit lighter. Um, Our Shabbat table will double as our Thanksgiving table because for the past year or two on Thanksgiving, our family has ventured into New York City to see the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Of course, I grew up watching it on TV, but my husband grew up actually going, or going the night before to Central Park to see the balloons blown up. So that tradition has continued, which means we feast on Friday as a family instead. But I've been thinking a lot about how a parade really is a good way to celebrate the holiday amid the sea of humanity that weathers the cold to see those festivities. It's a chance to celebrate who we are as a nation, a nation of immigrants, a nation of many faiths, a nation that values its children so much that we parents are... Willing to take them to a painfully long parade in late November.
0: (laughs) At least it's not so cold this year.
1: Right. Well, we hope, right? Um, It's the purpose behind America's Table, Thanksgiving Haggadah of sorts that the American Jewish Committee published just two months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. At the time, our nation was seriously wounded and a reminder of its unity and diversity was a source of healing. That project was revised this year to incorporate the principles of AJC's Communities of Conscience Initiative, also a reminder that in our unity, no matter how divided as a nation we might be politically, we can find healing. If listeners are looking for something to talk about at their Thanksgiving table, it's worth downloading America's Table for some conversation fodder. But this is not intended to be a commercial for that, no. In fact, to be perfectly honest, I doubt it will make an appearance at my table, since my kids would never sit still for a Thanksgiving ritual of any sort. Um, This resource is more for families who are, well, past my stage of life. Um, We'll be talking about our fears that gusts of wind would ground the cat in the hat and Charlie Brown and the marching bands and the color guards and the dance teams and the country and western singers and pop stars that I've never heard of. Oh, and the turkey and the sweet potatoes and the cranberry sauce, because this week that's what will be served at our Shabbat table. Sefi, how about you?
0: Well, for most reasons, it's obviously bad that Israel has been without a government for almost a year. But there's one tiny, very narrow reason why it might be a good thing that no one is minding the store. Buses on Shabbat. Famously, Israel's Jewish majority cities do not have public transportation on Shabbat. That is true even in Tel Aviv, the quote-unquote capital of secular Israel. Until now. With no active Knesset to pass a bill to stop them, the municipality of Tel Aviv launched free minibuses serving part of the city and its suburbs last Shabbat. Notably, the buses avoided the areas of the city with high Orthodox populations. More than 10,000 passengers crammed the vans, so much so that the city announced that it would be putting full-size buses into service in future weeks. Look, I keep Shabbat in a traditional way myself, and I never anticipate making use of these buses, but I'm glad they exist. The Israel I love is a secular, free society, modern and liberal. It's a Jewish state in the sense that it is for the Jews, not because it is held captive to Orthodox interests, though it is respectful of Jews who keep Shabbat, of course. So if you are the kind of person who rides buses on Shabbat, enjoy the speedy and free trip to the beach. And if you're not, enjoy not riding the buses and take pride that the city of Tel Aviv is leading the way yet again with tolerance, care and innovation. Shabbat shalom and happy Thanksgiving. Mm,
1: Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
0: You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at People at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us.
1: Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.